this week on the wild wild what the facts podcast where we talk about all the crazy surprising and hilarious things that have happened in history i'm lauren and that is jared what's up guys we are here we are ready we're kind of awake that's debatable (laughs) we're alive well uh folks this week we have stories about People that kind of just took a situation in the direction that they felt it should go without really consulting anybody. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy our two stories. Lauren, I think you're kicking this one off. Yeah, our stories are about people who do what they want, right? Do what I want. Yep. Do what I want. Um, we don't really have a lot of banter today because we've already recorded one episode. Sorry to break that image and magic. We're recording <laughs> you just ruined once. the fantasy we ruined it for you i'm sorry we recorded two at once so there's our banter's gone um i did lock my dogs downstairs hopefully i told trey to um so hopefully they won't bark this time oh well, there you go so you know improvements all right <laughs> you ready i'm ready do you know anything about lillian bland nothing nothing good Absolutely nothing. Tell you about her. All right. She was born September 28th, 1878 to a wealthy family in Maidstone, Kent, England. She was the third child of John Humphrey Bland and his wife, Emily Charlotte. Um, And this was, of course, during during the Victoria. Wow. Can I? (laughs) Oh, I apologize. All right. During the Victorian and Edwardian England times. So that's when women were expected to be very proper and homemakers and do lady things like embroider and cook and take care of kids. Right? You imagine a bunch of doilies sitting around. Yeah. Yeah. Doilies and hats. (laughs) Big frilly skirts, right? And proper women doing proper women things. Well, Lillian wasn't about that life. She literally had no interest in the Edwardian pursuits of societal ladies. And I quote, Those societal ladies had empty lives full of empty talk, which she apparently wrote in a letter to one of her friends. Good for her. Yeah. By the time she was 20, she had... lost my spot, sorry. By the time she was 20, she had been to many cities in Europe. She studied art in Paris. She studied music in Rome. She studied life everywhere. Um, She studied the various religious sects, ancient and modern. And then she read works of philosophers in Germany, France, and Italy. And then she was reported to say she found no truth or satisfaction in any of them. Um, That is so cool. Yeah. (laughs) That is so cool. Yeah, she was like, I've done everything. And And it bores me. Yeah, it's it's boring and whatever, I guess. Yeah, she she was a real renaissance lady. That's awesome. Yeah, luckily she was rich, so she could do those things. Well, you have Um, to be to be a renaissance person. Yeah. 
Um, so while she was exploring Europe and finding no happiness or satisfaction in anything, um, her mom died. And her father moved back to his hometown in Ireland with his sister. Because her his sister's husband had recently died as well. So there was, they had like a farm and a bunch of land and some workhouses. Workshops. Yeah, workshops. Um, and so then eventually Lillian came and joined him in Ireland. Um, she was very imaginative and artistic and she loved the spotlight and had no issues pretty much giving society the figurative middle finger. Like she did what she wanted. Um, yep. she, lo- she loved to smoke cigarettes. She hunted hare and fox and she fished, which is not very ladylike. Um, she also practiced jujitsu um, she worked on cars, she shot guns, and she loved to watch car races. She also, now this is really scandalous, are you ready? Uh-huh, I'm ready. She liked to wear pants. All right. No skirts. She preferred pants, which made people very upset. Um Huh. She, she loved to go horseback riding, but she refused to ride side saddle like a lady, a proper woman. Um, and she'd also wear pants while she was riding the horse. So this made everyone really mad. And a priest once asked spectators to stone her for the way she rode on a horse. That like, doesn't surprise me, but come on. <laughs> like, calm down, dude. Like, it's just a horse. She's not, like, killing people. It's fine. She can ride a horse. Um, right. During this time, she wrote a booklet called The Art of Writing. And in it, she's quoting, she's quoted, There is no more delightful sensation than the long, easy stride of a thoroughbred under one. When one can sit down in the saddle and enjoy a good gallop. Without be perched on a saddle, which always makes one feel separated from the horse. You're going to need to repeat again because you went into Uh, the little digital mush. Sorry. Start at the quote where it started. Start at the quote. Maybe I'll say it right better this time. Okay. There you go. She said, there is no more delightful sensation than the long, easy stride of a thoroughbred under one. When one can sit down in the saddle and enjoy a good gallop and feel the splendid freedom of movement it without being perched up on a side saddle, which always makes one feel separated from the horse and not in harmony with every motion. So she had strong feelings about not riding on the side saddle. Very strong feelings. Also one of the first women in Ireland to apply for a jockey's license. But they told her a hard no because she was a woman. Um, They were like, no thanks. And she wanted to race horses, but they wouldn't let her do it because you can't race horses side saddle. Um, Come on, Ireland. Yeah, get with it. But luckily, she had money. Um, <laughs> and so in her home, her father set up like a dark room. And she be, like got really into photography and she would develop photos in this dark room. And she started a career in photography and journalism. So by 1908, she was pretty established as a journalist and a photographer for a bunch of London papers. And she often reported on sports and took press photos. And, but her real interest was 
photographing and reporting on birds. Um, so she was often noted to be wandering the hills and taking photographs of birds. Sorry, I keep burping. I apologize. No, and you're good. She, she was like obsessed with birds. She thought they were super interesting. And some of her photos made it into the Royal London's Photographical Society exhibitions. And she created one of the first color plates of live birds ever captured. Awesome. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, at one time, she apparently she was in Scotland and she like decided to just go there and photograph a bunch of birds. She'd have her friend take her by boat to like the secret island and they would she would just spend all day photographing birds and watching them fly. Like it literally said she would just be laying on her back watching the seagulls. <laughs> um so she did what what she wanted, right? Absolutely. Um, and while she was there, she got a postcard from her uncle who was in Paris. And this postcard happened to have a picture of Louis Leroy. I looked up how to say his name and then I forgot. Thoreau? Yep. Leroy. Yeah, that's his name. Louis Thoreau. Yep. No, with a B. B L E R I O T. Louis Leroy. Maybe. Oh, I don't know. Anyway. He was a famous aviator and he was the first man to fly across the English channel in a monoplane. Um, and so there was a picture on the postcard because he was so famous. And when she looked at it, there's not, not doesn't say anything about what her uncle said to her, what she said back, but Every article I read about her mentioned this postcard being what inspired her to target her next major project. Um, I'm excited. Sorry, my phone's ringing. Um, You're good. She wanted to fly. But not only fly, she wanted to build her own plane. (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, that makes sense in context of this lady. (laughs) Yeah, she was like, I don't want to half-ass this. I'm going to go full throttle. So she went to a British aviation meeting in October of 1909, where she would just, they had a bunch of like planes and gliders there, and she apparently just circled them and scribbled down the measurements and dimensions and then sketched the bli- the, wow, the biplane she wanted to make. Um, but thoroughly in her fashion even though she was inspired by these planes, she wasn't really impressed by them. Okay. Um, And she was quoted to say, the few English machines are, I imagine no good, much too small and fitted with motorbike engines. (laughs) So she vowed to create the first um, airplane in Ireland, pretty much like the first fly machine is what (laughs) she called it. Um, And luckily that property she lived on, with her father, had a bunch of workshops in it so she could do her project. And she began building a glider with a six-foot wingspan out of bamboo, which she used as, like, a scalable model. Um, And then she flew that like a kite to see if it would work. And after she successfully built that and it flew, she started writing for a magazine called Flight. And she would share her work. And she began building a full-scale glider. 
And she decided that if that full-scale glider worked, then she would add an, en- an engine later to it and make it like an airplane, right? Um, but she kind of MacGyvered this whole thing together, which is awesome and terrifying. But um, she used molding ash for wood spars and skids, spruce for the plane's ribs, and bamboo for the outriggers. Sure, a bunch of plain words I don't understand, but... Um, Nor do I. She fashioned a steering mechanism out of a bicycle handlebar. Okay. Um, And apparently if you turn the handle to the right, the right hand of the tail would go up. And if you turn it to the left, the wires were crossed. I don't really know how that worked. But um, she added some pedals to control the vertical rudder. And for wing fabric, she bought six-foot sheets of unbleached calico muslin, which she dunked and soaked in batches of gelatin to make them waterproof. Huh. Um, but this workshop she was in was a little bit too small for this full-scale plane, so she had to make it in pieces and then put it together outside. Um, when it was finished, it had a 27-foot wingspan, And she named it the Mayfly, which was deliberately ironic because it may fly or it may not. (laughs) (laughs) So to test its weightlifting capacity, she enlisted four six-foot volunteers. And along with her aunt's garden assistant, apparently, she had them hold on to the wings as she took off. So... To see if the weight could hold, like if the glider could hold an engine. (laughs) And she was like, well, apparently they like ran off this hill. And when the wind picked it up, it was gliding. The people panicked as they watched their feet lift up and just like let go. Um, But she was like, yeah, that's fine. If it can handle them, then it can handle a engine, of course. So she wrote a letter to a British aircraft manufacturer to see if they could make like a light engine. And they were like, yeah, sure, we can do that. And then she got impatient because the delivery got delayed. So she went to England herself to pick it up by train. And was like, <laughs> nope, it's coming. Let's do this. Um, when she got back home, it was apparently like raining and it was awful outside. And she also didn't have a fuel tank yet. Um, huh. But she was determined to get it built and running, so she fashioned a fuel tank out of a whiskey bottle and an ear trumpet. That was her aunt's. Um, Excuse me? Do you know what an ear trumpet is? Yeah, but like... <laughs> huh. Yeah, I... MacGyver, she was super smart, I guess. And then yeah, she started awesome. up the engine with this fuel tank that she made. Um, it was apparently so loud... It woke people up in the area because they thought something had exploded. <laughs> <laughs> so after it ran for a little bit, she turned it off and decided she would wait for the actual fuel tank to arrive because it was so loud. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And side note, another appalling thing for a lady. She did all of this work while wearing coveralls. Because she didn't want to get her skirts tangled up in like the wires and the humanity. Um, so after some reinforcements she made to the glider to support the weight of the engine, because when she first tested it out, it kind of started to break a little bit. 
Um, she was ready to put it to the test. And her neighbor was like, yeah, you can use my land because he had 80 acres of it for her to use as like a runway. Um, but apparently this land also had a wild bull on it that was like mean. <laughs> and she was like, eh, whatever. If the bull's coming after me, it'll just make me fly faster. This lady's awesome. <laughs> uh, and after five weeks of it just like pouring rain and she was getting so impatient, it finally let up for her enough that she could attempt her flight, even though the ground was still kind of wet. And this, um, But she was like, nope, we're doing it. It stopped raining. Let's go. So September of 1910, she started her plane. Um, it took off and it went 30 feet from the ground and flew for about a quarter mile. And she said, I could hardly believe it. After each flight, I ran back to see where the wheel tracks left the grass to convince myself that I had really been airborne. Because <laughs> um, apparently it was so smooth that she was so surprised by it. She was like, did I actually even move? Um, That's awesome. And she was successfully the first woman or woman to build and fly her own plane. And she started to sell her biplane gliders without the engine for $250 or whatever, 250 whatever they had in Ireland in the early 1900s. Yeah. And her, <laughs> her regular gliders for 80 whatever they had in Ireland in the 1800s or 1900s. <laughs> um, and she was going to start working on making her biplane like fly further and hold more weight and everything. But her dad was like, flying a plane is dangerous and not very ladylike. So if you promise to stop and to donate your glider, I'll buy you a brand new Model T Ford. And huh. she was like, all right. <laughs> and so she sold the engine and donated the glider. And she said, I had proved wrong the many people who said that no woman could build an aeroplane. And that gave me great satisfaction. And he's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, her dad took her to buy the Model T Ford. And when she got to the dealership, she um, apparently they usually would just like send a delivery driver to deliver the car to you after you bought it. Uh -huh. And she somehow convinced them to let her drive it home. <laughs> even though she had never driven before. <laughs> you know, I don't think she would have any issues with driving. Yeah, she figured her. it out and she got the car home just fine and everything was fine. Um, and so she learned to drive it and everything was cool. And then she also decided, I'm going to open the first Ford dealership in Northern Ireland. And she became one of the first female-owned car dealers. And she ran that for a few months before she married her first cousin, Charles Bland, in 1911. And I read somewhere that her father may have played a little bit of part in her settling down as well, but I couldn't find anything solid for that. But I It's disappointing that you have such a cool, smart lady and she marries her cousin. Yeah, she married her first cousin. Um, but they moved to Vancouver Island. Wow, Vancouver Island in Canada. Um, and they became farmers and okay. they had 160 acres and they kind of just like lived off the land. And she became really into farming for a little while because she didn't half-ass anything. She had to go full into right. it. Um, of course. They tried to start a family. She had one daughter. Uh, they named her Patricia Lillian Bland. Um, she died of tetanus at the age of 16. And Lillian also took a whole bunch of photos while she was out there. Like she still kept doing photography. And so that 
she took pictures of like Native Americans and trees and flowers and stuff. And she, uh, what is it called? She like developed them all herself and everything. And I don't know if you can still find the pictures, but they had a couple of them on some of the articles that I looked at. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, but she, she, like soon after her daughter's death, kind of lost interest in farming mm-hmm. and left her husband and moved back to England to live with her brother. And no. <laughs> um, they didn't go Lannister, did they? No, 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 no. She okay, just good. lived with she just lived with him for a little while. And then she apparently would like work the stock markets a little bit and gamble a little. And so she gained enough money that in the 50s she retired in Cornwall. And then she spent her days living her best life. Like she was quoted to say, I keep busy. I have my plants and I paint and I gamble. And this was in 1966 when she was 88 years old. Somebody interviewed her and she goes, I back, I back five horses a day with success. I may add and great fun. Um, and when the same interviewer asked her what she thought about airplanes, Lillian just replied, those noisy things. A cool lady. <laughs> um, she died May 11th, 1971 at the age of 92. And she lived a full life mastering many talents and not giving a flying rat's ass about the patriarchy for one second. And she is awesome. So. I'm kind of disappointed. I didn't know about her. That's really cool. Yeah. I was originally going to do my story on Alice Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. but I wanted, I kind of ran out of time because my life is chaos, but, um, and so I wanted to kind of devote, I do want to do her eventually because she's so cool. Do you know anything about Alice Roosevelt? I do not. She was the only person to make Teddy Roosevelt lose his mind. Like she, she's my hero. Um, and she, yeah, so she's pretty, very similar in the mindset of Lillian, but a little more party girl. Okay. And yeah, so I will eventually do that. But I found this after I was like, I don't have time to really like look super hard into Alice Roosevelt. And so I thought this was super great, too. And she's another one of my heroes now. Well, there you go. No, that's really cool, too. I'm going to have to tell my kid about her. Yeah. That's, some, that's somebody to be looked up to. Definitely. For sure. And she like was a feminist of her time. And Yeah. I mean, she she was just an impressive human, let alone, you know, and and, yeah, that's really cool. And like, nobody knows about her. Like everybody talks about Amelia Earhart. And so like when Amelia Earhart or when Lillian did this stuff with the airplane, Amelia Earhart was 12. So yeah. And Amelia (laughs) Earhart didn't, I mean, (laughs) she didn't really accomplish anything. Yeah. 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 She tried. I mean, I'm sorry, but she's a a fellow Kansan, but it is what it is. She just didn't accomplish anything. So she tried. It's it's a harrowing story, and she definitely had bravery far beyond my own. Um, But yeah, I mean, that lady was like Howard Hughes. Yeah. She just. Except she was a lady. (laughs) She was like, I'm bored today. What should I master? right now like, rich eccentric builds a plane yeah. granted she built a plane before howard hughes built a plane like yep. that's crazy so howard hughes is like her yep that's insane and she it's it like the whole thing is super crazy she literally built her plane out of bamboo like 
good good for her good yeah for her. i'm gonna i'm gonna definitely do more research on her because i if you can cool. find more research let me know because i you can look at my google thing i have like 17 articles pulled up trying to mm-hmm. find different things for her and literally everything i told you about is pretty much everything i could find Okay. Because I was desperate to find information about her, like after she got married, or mm-hmm. after she, or like when she started the Model T or like the Ford dealership. And it was literally like she started a Ford dealership, got married, moved to Canada. They had a farm. Her daughter died. She moved back to England, and then she gambled. Like that's literally all I could find. <sighs> so. People, if you have more information on Lillian Bland, please let us know. Yeah, send me everything. If you are a descendant of her and you have like her journals, I want to read them. Because um, she, she, if she may have had journals, who knows? But they were probably the most interesting things and funniest things I'll ever read. Because uh, <laughs> she just had this like great sense of humor where she was just like, eh, it's all right. But also, I do what I want. and. I want you, to see her when I grow up. <laughs> you know, you know what impresses me is every single episode that we have done, people we don't tell each other what subject we're doing, but we always have really weird connections between our stories. And you're going to see some connections here. Like my story involves aviation and a famous British aviator. So That's hilarious. Um, and like and last week we both did stuff in Brazil. <laughs> right. So it's it's very yeah. We'll, we'll see how long this trend continues. Yeah, hopefully we don't ever do the same thing. Uh, we try not to, but yeah. But we so. like we definitely don't even tell. Like we give each other the subject of like literally. We said, "All right, we're going to look at people who do what they want," and that's what we googled. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. well, and and we give each other enough clues to where we're not doing the same thing. But yeah, once we confirm that we're not, then we just go off to the races until we actually record so yeah um like, so it's worked pretty, out well so far yeah last week i pretty much said are you doing a man or a woman and that's how we yeah figured out. <laughs> yep. so very similar uh timeline too. our uh, area of time so all right my that's dude was born in, in 94 so he's a little bit younger but in um, 1894 yep okay i was like oh <laughs> so um are you are you ready for this this tale this gets it starts out normal okay and then it just gets weird and then it just goes off the rails so All right. let me take uh, a drink of water before yes I... yes <clears throat> if we didn't do this on a sunday night i would say maybe we just need to get drunk and do these but uh yeah well except we have I, don't stuff. Drink. I don't i don't drink oh anymore, yeah you're so. healthy right now i'm i'm a healthy individual so i'll drink a smoothie i uh hate my life 90% of the time. So I, I drink just kidding. I really don't drink that much. I never really have. So. Oh, well. You know, me. Anywho, I know uh. you, I know you. So, uh, today I have a very interesting story about an individual named Rudolf Hess. Rudolf Hess. Let's hear yes. about it. So, and you should look up Rudolf Hess. So you get a context from what this guy looks like. Um, Oh yeah. I was going to tell you to look up Lillian Bland. She's actually kind of hot. I, I did. And I confirmed that. Yeah. Um, so this story is about his fall from grace as Hitler's successor. Um, again, it, folks, if you look up Rudolf Hess, you're going to recognize him. Uh, he spoke at a lot of the early rallies. 
He has super dark features, big like caterpillar bushy eyebrows. Oh, he's got a some ton of hair. Eyebrows. Lanky dude. He he kind of has a look as a guy that has a very hairy back, which is gross, I know, but if you look at the picture of him, you'll know what I mean. Yeah, he kind of I'm trying to think what he looks like. I'll, I'm going to think about this as I stare at the picture. Continue. Yeah, he, he has very, very dark, creepy eyes, like Rasputin eyes. Yeah, so, maybe that's what it is. So anyway, uh, Rudolph Walter Richard Hess was born actually in Egypt on April 26th of 1894 to a very wealthy German family. And Alexandria is where he actually grew up. And it was currently, or at the time, not currently, it was at the time occupied by the British Empire. So um, seeing the empire's treatment of the non-whites in Egypt kind of shaped (laughs) Rudolf Hess's worldview. And he looked down on people of different races and ethnicities and such like that. All right. Um, And so that that's definitely going to come into play of in his later aspirations. So um, this early life also made him very unique. Uh, He ended up being in like Hitler's inner circle, part of the high command. It made him unique amongst all of them because he was the only one to grow up under a different regime pretty much. Um, so in 1809, he was sent to Germany to study. And then he also spent time in Switzerland to gain skills to take over his family's business, which his father very much wanted him to do. Okay. So when World War One broke out, uh, as many Germans at the time did, he enlisted as an inf- in- infantryman and he was a very consistent soldier and had a decent military career again unlike a lot of the guys in the german high command um (laughs) and so yeah he had he had a very interesting military career he was actually awarded the iron cross second class in 1915 and right before the war ended he uh enrolled to train as an aviator um, but he was never able to see action as an aviator in the war and his aviation skills are going to play a very, very, very important role later on in the story. All right. So in 1919, uh, he started studying geopolitics uh, from a professor named Karl Haushaufer. And at, I think this was at the uh, University of Munich. And okay. Haushaufer was known for the concept of Liebenstrom. Do you know what that is? Um, live. Living space. Ah. So I this was getting was, there. It's been you're a minute. There. You're getting <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, Liebenstrom was the it was kind of a cornerstone of the Nazi ideology, where there is just these uh, rightful places. It's like Manifest Destiny, except for Nazis. Okay. Um, and so he eventually joined the Nazi Party in 1920, and he was with Hitler in 23 when Hitler tried for the first time to take over the Bavarian government. He almost actually did it. Uh, had somebody not done something stupid uh (laughs) but anyway he ended up being jailed with hitler after the failed coup and he actually ended up having a heavy heavy influence on the writing of mein kampf uh because he was so influenced by that liebenstrom ideal so i'm gonna fast forward a bit a lot happens in between here so hitler actually came to power in 33 and folks, remember this, that Hitler was elected democratically. Um, so Hess was by Hitler's side from the very, very, very beginning. And um, Hitler rewarded these loyal people handsomely. And so he made him his uh, pretty much his second in command. His deputy Fuhrer is what he called him. And uh, Hess was interesting and different amongst the rest of the high command people because... 
the rest of those guys were really, I mean, they were believers, but they were more concerned about themselves and getting themselves ahead. Whereas Hess just absolutely adored Hitler was a true believer, a complete acolyte of him. Um, and his ambitions really didn't go any farther than that, which ended up biting him in the rear. So maybe Hess just really was jealous of Hitler's mustache and Hitler was really jealous of his eyebrows. So together could be, or, or Hitler's mustache was Hess's eyebrow shaved off and glued on Hitler's lip. Oh, that's probably what it is. He was just like, I need to give a little bit of space in between my eyebrows. Just a tiny bit. Right, right, right. Right here. So, um, Hess is going to end up making a lot of really strategical errors that all end up just causing the situation he ends up being in. One of these is he ends up hiring a young man that he took a lot of interest in uh, named Martin Borman. Uh, He was impressed by Borman's efficiency. And at the time, Borman was just some backroom clerk, you know, and uh, Hess was impressed and put him on his staff. And Martin Borman, if you know who he is, of course, used this opportunity to weasel his way closer and closer to Hitler and took every opportunity to undermine his boss. So and the more you learn about him too, all of these like Nazi high command people, it's like an episode of Mean Girls or that movie. They just, yeah, everyone is just trying to stab each other in the back. It was insane. Yeah, um, sounds about right. I so, have never really looked into a lot of like the Nazi part too. Like I... It's always just like, let's learn about what they did, not who they were in my brain. So this is interesting. Yeah. Um, so anywho, uh, he's also very, very, very much to blame for his own fall personally, because he was simply put a very weird guy. Um, and like even the most evil men like Hitler get annoyed with people. Uh so he used to visit Hitler in his his place called the Burkhoff. It's kind of his his escape home or whatnot. Like Hess would bring camp. his own food, which obviously <laughs> made Hitler very mad. He was that guy. Yeah, that's um, funny. He was also very obsessed with the occult, astrology, telepathy, telekinesis, crystals, pendula. He was just a weird dude. Oh, and his, his aides were weird? very, very uncomfortable around him as well. <laughs> And there's actually a story of one of his his aides coming in to give him a message. And Hess had a chair tilted back on the back two legs. And he was trying to keep it in place with his mind. Oh. Yeah. So interesting. Very, very weird dude. And it's just it's disturbing and funny to think that the second in command of a country is a guy like this. I mean, I like crystals. So, but you, you <laughs> like crystals because they look pretty. He liked crystals because he thought they had some mystical power. Hey, they might have powers. We don't know. All right, hippie. Um, <laughs> so, just this weird nature about him made him a super easy target, <laughs> as you All can right. imagine. So, um, so before before the war had actually broke out. Um, there was a meeting in the Reich's chancellery to kind of plan the evasion of Poland out and Hess wasn't invited. So this, this kind of started feeling his paranoia, which I mean, he was yeah. totally justified in it. It turned out, but it started feeling his paranoia. 
Um, it's definitely like the mean girls where they like call each other on like, right. Or like behind their backs calling, and stuff. Yeah. And they and they talk about each other all the time, like without yeah. a doubt. Um, but he's also very concerned about an all out war. Like he does not like the concept of it. And he wasn't the only senior official with these misgivings. And actually another very, very early follower of Hitler, Hermann Goering, also had misgivings about the war. He didn't think it was something they could win. But both of them really, really, really feared that once they attacked Poland, and, and again, they justifiably feared England would come into the war and then making Germany fight a two-front war, which is never a fun time. Um, so Goering ends up doing the brave thing. I say that ironically. And just ends up dipping out of the conversations just to give himself some plausible deniability in case things go south. <laughs> So, um, and this is a guy who's like pretty much the head of the military at the time. So anyway, um, Hess also tries to use his individual influence to keep England out of the war. And he invites this dude named Lord Buxton of England to try to convince him not to support Poland in case they do end up, you know, going over there. And then Buxton returned to England and pretty much told everyone that Hess is an idiot and he doesn't have any power. And that meeting was a complete waste of his time. So oh, this, this was a failure. Um, so the invasion of Poland was under a weird, scary pretense. And so uh, what happened was there's all this talk to invade Poland. Um and the justification was there was these mobs over there, these Polish mobs that were uh, terrorizing these native German people. Uh, some land was lost in, in, from Germany after World War I in Poland, and I think like 7 million Germans got displaced. And uh, Goebbels took advantage of this and, and made up these stories that they were just completely being oppressed by the Polish government, which was completely all lies, of course. Um, and then what ended up happening is he just plastered this everywhere and there was no counter narrative and eventually just everyone thought it was the case. And I mean, he even spread it internationally too. So, uh, these reels played everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what ended up happening was they had this, 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 this powder keg just ready to go and they just needed something to set it off. And what that was, was there was this radio station on the German side that allegedly got attacked by Polish soldiers. This ended up being just a complete fabrication and a lie. And what it actually was, was Himmler had dressed up some of his SS people, pretended to attack this radio station. This radio station's dramatically broadcasting this entire thing as it's happening, right? And then what they ended up doing was taking uh, concentration camp prisoners, uh, early concentration camp prisoners, shooting them, putting them in Polish outfits, making them look like Polish soldiers, blaming the whole thing on Poland, and then bada bing, bada boom, invade Poland, right? That makes sense. So, uh, Goering, um, you know, is really pooping his pants at this moment because he, re he really does not want to go to war, uh, <laughs> but he sucks it up and does it anyway. And uh, Germany does their Blitzkrieg thing. And everybody knows the Blitzkrieg works gangbusters and they take over Poland fairly easily. Um, at this time, Hess is signing documents saying any newly acquired territories are now a part of Germany. Uh, and so he, like Goering, also set his misgivings aside just to do what Uncle Hitler wanted to do. When daddy says, you well, do it. Do what daddy says. So it turns yeah. out 
the worries about England were 100% warranted both by Hess and by uh, Goering <laughs> because they did not waste a whole lot of time to declare war. Yep. So, <laughs> uh, so okay, so this ended up just the, the Wehrmacht, which was uh, Wehrmacht, which was headed by Goering, just uh-huh. invaded the country very quickly. Um, Himmler went in there with the SS and then just quelled any sort of resistance right away. So Poland was taken in very easily. And then Czechoslovakia and Austria were both annexed. So these guys are all flying very, very high. Um, so the whole mood is soured on one of the first attempts at Hitler's life. It might have been the first attempt. So there was this moment when uh, Hitler was supposed to speak in Munich. And uh, at the speaking engagement, there was going to be poor weather. And so Hitler's pilot said, hey, we can't fly in there. We got to take the train. And so he had to get a, give a shorter speech while he was there. And what ended up happening was he goes to the building in, in, in Munich, gives the speech, and then he leaves 13 minutes earlier than they figured he was going to leave. And then, you know, 13 minutes later, a bomb goes off where he was standing. And what's crazy is bad weather changed the world essentially and uh 13 minutes uh 13 minutes wow would have had a a very different world Um, come on time travelers fix your crap well they can't fix the weather Uh, i guess that's fair i guess they could reschedule that speech or something yeah um so of course (laughs) all of the mean girls use this assassination attempt to gain more favor with hitler and so they're all doing these weird things to, you know, appease <laughs> him and make him happy. And Hess's contribution to this was he sets up this like weird, grandiose. I mean, all Nazi ceremonies were grandiose, but this this just overblown, cheesy ceremony to honor the fallen martyrs. And then, of course, he, you know, speaks at length about Hitler's miraculous escape from death and stuff like that. Um, but it, it was really just a gross attempt to, to gratiate himself. Uh, and get his uh, um, get his position back. But um, so Goebbels also uses this opportunity, and he ends up blaming this on British and French agents to you know start turning the the public eye against England and France because he knows eventually they're gonna have to be fighting them because you know England declared war on them. This is a big, big, big lie. Uh, the perpetrator was actually a German who feared total war coming and wanted to do the right thing okay so um with german occupation spreading across europe his influence waning hess's mindset progressively becomes more fractured as you'd imagine (laughs) so after france fell uh goering garnered more and more influence and was made pretty much the commander-in-chief of the military the reichsmarschall and uh, essentially in prestige, you know, leapfrogged Hess. Um, of the high command, the only dude <laughs> not in Paris was Hess. Oh. And even Albert Speer, who, uh, oddly enough, Ryan, who we used to work with at Chili's, is related to this dude. Oh, um, so Albert Speer is a former aide who uh, became Hitler's architect and confidant wrote in his journal how much Hitler would complain about Hess. Like he's like, oh, oh man, every time he comes to me, it's always just he comes with such heavy stuff and he's so <laughs> serious. Like stuff like that. And so he just started to um to see him as a burden. Okay. So 
this is where things get weird. <laughs> so which one is Gretchen Wieners is what I want to know. Uh, Himmler, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Himmler, for sure. Okay. Uh, Himmler was a dum-dum. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, so things are going to get weird. So the battle for Britain, uh, battle for Britain or the Blitz starts, and uh-huh. uh, the Germans obviously think that it's just going to go quickly. And it turns out Britain and the RAF were like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> And that Winston Churchill dude is is pretty darn tough and doesn't suffer yeah. idiots lightly. Um, <laughs> so this is the first time the Wehrmacht actually hit a roadblock, and it makes the invasion impossible. Uh, impossible, and it made Goering look very weak. And so Hess sees this as an opportunity to regain favor with Hitler, and he's going to lean on a skill he learned at the end of World War One to try to broker a peace with England. Okay. So, um, Hess during this time had been flying this plane. It was a Messerschmitt BF 110. It's a biplane and it's usually fitted for two pilots. But uh, he had his folks make it so he can fly it by himself. And he even had extra fuel tanks put on it. Because he and has no friends. Because he has no friends. And <laughs> his explanation for this was, oh, I'm just putting the plane through its paces and testing out its capabilities. And nobody will fly with me because I'm weird. And nobody will fly with me because I'm weird. Um, so you can kind of see where this is going. He uh, just flies going, I'm so lonely. Right. Very. It, it's... <laughs> You feel sad for the guy until you remember how that he's a Nazi, he's a terrible yeah. human being, yeah. um, and had a lot of influence on how things went. Even though he didn't, he wasn't there at the end. So. I mean, I have just like weird Schadenfreude actually because I hate Nazis. So it's it's, it's going to get better. Oh, Schadenfreude. So if you haven't figured it out, his plan was to use his plan uh, his skills as a pilot to fly to England. And then meet with an influential acquaintance that he had met years before and broker a meeting with Winston Churchill in the pursuit of peace. Oh. So um, this was <laughs> this was his Hail Mary to get back in, in Adolf's good graces. Could you imagine Winston Churchill like listening to this guy be like, the crystals told me that if you follow the path of the stars... Uh, <laughs> Oh, we're going to get to uh, oh. how Winston Churchill addresses this later. Okay, because I'm just um, imagining that old crotchety man just staring at him like, what? <laughs> just drunk out of his mind, just listening <laughs> to him like, what is he talking about? Um, anywho, so the contact that he planned to meet with was the Duke of Hamilton, uh, who he had met in Berlin at the 36 Olympics. And these two men had found common ground in their uh, love and skills as an aviators. But it turns out the Duke of Hamilton was a little more accomplished than um, Hess because the Duke of Hamilton was actually the first person ever to fly a biplane over Mount Everest. So and he probably has friends. And he, he definitely has friends. Good looking mm-hmm. dude. Um, he, he has that, two eyebrows. He had that accent going for him. Yeah. So, got it. Uh, got it. So between this accomplishment and the fact that Hess was just generally an Anglophile from his upbringing in the British Empire, you can imagine that he had a huge man crush on this dude. Yes, he did. So it was the, it was the eyebrows, really. It, it was, yeah, it was definitely. It's like they're so kempt. <laughs> so there's anyway, two of them. <laughs> 
he doesn't even have to pluck him. Um, so before he leaves, Hess visits Hitler one last time. And actually, the subject of this conversation was never revealed, which leads a lot of people to think that Hess actually told Hitler what he was planning to do and just wanted to give him as much plausible deniability as possible. But uh, considering later reactions to things, I don't hold a, I don't think this theory holds a lot of weight. I don't think Hitler knew at all. Maybe um, he was just replenishing Hitler's mustache. That's could really have been what the meeting was. Yeah, could have been or just talking about the good old days. So yeah. So anyway, six days after that meeting, Hess writes a letter detailing everything he plans on doing, and then he gives it to his aide to give to Hitler the next day. So after oh. he leaves, um, and then Ask he for forgiveness, not permission. Got exactly, it. <laughs> exactly. And he leaves his family, his wife, Ilsa and his kids just saying, yeah, I'll be back in a few days. Spoilers. He won't. Um, oh. and then on May 10th, 1941, Rudolf Hess took off for Scotland after confirming the weather conditions. So his plan was to fly over Germany over the North Sea and into Scotland. And he just barrels straight into <laughs> enemy airspace. Oh. <laughs> um, and so as the sun goes down, he uh, has trouble finding a safe landing spot, as you can imagine. Yep. So unable to find a spot to land, what do you think he decides to do? <laughs> uh, crash it. He bails out of the airplane. Oh, gosh. Hess has never done a parachute jump in his life. Oh, geez. Keep in mind, this is the guy who's the second in command of Germany (laughs) at the time. Unbelievably, his parachute opens up just fine and he lands safely in a farmer's field in Scotland where he is found by the farm worker. Hess, in very good English, announces, I am German and I have a message for the Duke of Hamilton. So um, next, the uh, the local home guard, I see them as like the neighborhood watch of the town. Um, they end up showing up to investigate. And so this is kind of where the story goes from weird to a Coen Brothers movie. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> there's, some, there's some weird German dude in my field. Uh, right. I so, think he jumped out of a plane. We're not really sure. So the, the farmer brings Hess back to his farmhouse and offers him a cup of tea, as you okay. know, in Scotland. And mm-hmm. he's eventually taken into custody where he is positively identified as Hitler's second in command. <laughs> he will never be a free man again, people. Yeah, Just... no one, no, look at that face. Like, if you Google him, <laughs> he wasn't hiding ever. They were like, oh, okay, yeah, we know who you are. <laughs> yeah, so... um <laughs> And then one of his greatest miscalculations in this, and this is just this just dumb romanticized view of aristocracy and all of this, is he just imagined him coming over, being the second in command of Germany, landing his plane in a field and calling some military officer and having himself delivered to Winston Churchill down the road, you know, uh, and, and having some special meeting and, and drinking and stuff like that. And then he also assumed that, you know, the aristocracy still had a lot of political power in the UK, which just wasn't <laughs> a thing really anymore. So he's an idiot and um, and he definitely gets what's coming to him. All right. So wait. don't forget that as he's being identified in England, he gave that letter to his aide. <laughs> <laughs> 
So around the time he's identified, his aide hand delivers the letter to Hitler at the Burkhoff. And the letter mm -hmm. stated that he went to UK to broker a peace and that their conflict is not with England. He pulled out the old, I did it for you excuse and tried yeah. to, you know, tell Hitler that, you know, I love you and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then he t then tells Hitler that if it fails, just call him crazy. He did this so Hitler didn't know and he can just disavow the entire thing. Yeah. Um, Hitler calls all of the high command folks into a room and just screams at them, uh, especially at Bormann, who used to, you know, work with Hess directly. And of course, Bormann just like, ah, that, that, you know, he has nothing. Um, Daddy, I didn't do it. It was him, not me. Right. And so Bormann calls uh, Goebbels and Goebbels, who hates Hess and is another dude who thinks he's a weirdo to waste no time to, you know, fulfill Hess's request to make him sound like an idiot. And so <laughs> Goebbels writes up some copy and he gets on the radio and, and tells the country that Hess did something stupid. Um, and then what ends up happening is Hess is now persona non grata. His images are removed everywhere and his name is pretty much never, never spoken. Oh. Um, and so, <laughs> the, so while this is going on in germany and you know it's very serious and and uh you know they have to turn this page from hess the bbc also has a story to tell oh geez um, and then in true british fashion they have a lot of fun with it and the reel <laughs> that plays and you can actually watch the interview with the farmer online is a lot like those cat in the tree puff pieces that run on the six o'clock news it's Jeez. absolutely silly and so Instead of getting a meeting with Churchill, Hess is sent to the Tower of London. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so he stays consistent and he tells interrogators that it's in their best interest to make peace with Germany. And then he basically tells them that, hey, guys, if you let us just have the continent, we'll just leave England alone. Oh, um, yeah. That's yeah. fine. Everything's and, fine. And so these guys are listening to him and they can't really tell that if he's serious or if he's playing dumb or if he's really dumb. And, uh, and it also turns out, and this is another terrible uh, miscalculation by Hess, that this trip corresponded with one of the worst air raids to that time of the Blitz. And there were up to 1,200 casualties reported. Oh. So as you can imagine... Churchill Bad was timing, not. Sir. <laughs> yeah, Churchill. If you know Churchill, was not interested in talking. Yeah, Hitler, come and get your boy. Like, uh... and and don't forget. Uh, so Hess is in Eng or in yeah in England at the time. Uh, Bormann uh, wants to work on this little vacancy that's opened up, uh, as Bormann does, and so he has Hess's wife Ilsa just brutally interrogated. Oh. The only way that she gets out of it was she appealed to Ava Brown um, and it worked. And Ava Brown said she didn't know anything. Let her go. What's crazy about this is Borman had named his kids Rudolph and Ilsa and they were uh, his kids godparents. Yeah, he had his kids names changed in the courts. Oh, geez. <laughs> and then uh, he was rewarded with the appointment of he didn't get Hess's old position, but instead there was a new position made and he was the head of the chancellery, which pretty much made him the top political guy in Germany and made him Hitler's gatekeeper. So, so um, bye bye, Hess. See you later. Yeah. So Hess is later relocated to a safe house outside of London. 
Um, it's here that he just feels super lonely and down on himself. As you can imagine, this entire plan has failed. He's been 100% disgraced. Lord knows as far as he knows what's happened to his family. He's just hit rock bottom and sees one way out. So uh, he throws himself over the banister of the safe house that he's staying in into the hall below. Okay. So as was his attempt to broker peace with England, he fails in this too. <laughs> did, did his eyebrows break his fall? No, his legs oh. did. Um, and his legs broke as well. And so oh. he just laid there broken and mentally oh. and physically and emotionally. Don't feel bad for him. Um, so he ended up actually being one of the few high command people that were tried in Nuremberg. Uh, his buddy Goering was one of the other ones that didn't end okay. up killing themselves before the war. Um, and because he left before the really, really, really sketchy stuff started, uh, he was just uh, sentenced to a life sentence. He wasn't, you know, executed. And okay. annoyingly, he actually died in my lifetime. He died on August seventeenth, oh. nineteen eighty-seven, at the age of ninety-three. And oh. finally, uh, his end came with an extension cord. He finally succeeded at something that he had failed at. He waited until he was 93 to try to kill himself again. <laughs> yeah. So there's actually, um, there, there's, there's conspiracies around that too. And a lot of people are saying that he was killed and, and, uh, he's too old to kill himself and this, that, and the other, but he killed himself. Um, point, and, like you're gonna die anyway. Just like, wait a minute. You'll probably have a stroke or something like, <laughs> right. Right. Um, I, all right. And yeah, his body was kind of, they played hot potato with it for a while. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think he got cremated and whatnot. But yeah, yeah. that's that's the story of Rudolf Hess. Um, he, I mean, it, it's the funniest story you can really get from all of that. Yeah, that is like the silliest story about Nazis. Like, I mean. Yeah. Wait. England could have just like locked him in the Tower of London and just like left him there. Yeah, but I think I don't know. Tower of London was kind of like on its way out of being used as a prison around that time anyway. So that's probably why they did it. And I yeah. think too, they probably saw that the the war was winding down and he would be more beneficial as like a um as, as in court as opposed to dead. Yeah. And stuff, it was probably so. like entertaining too. Right. Um yeah, and I'm sure. Yeah, they were definitely having fun with them. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's the story of of old Rudolf Hess. He, yeah, uh, it's weird because you do start to feel sympathetic towards him until you remember who he was, and um, the man had very very ugly worldviews, and um, not to be someone not someone to sympathize with. So and an ugly face. So and an ugly face, and I don't like talking about people, but. Yeah, he's a Nazi. Nazis, okay, I'll talk about him. Yeah, and then you can have Shad and Freuda, right? So <laughs> not really with him because he died an old man. Yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, yeah, he. That was an interesting story. That was one I definitely didn't know. Yeah, so there's this uh, to learn more about the men. There's this uh, um, documentary on Netflix called, I think, Hitler's Inner Circle. And it just tells the story of the people more so from start okay. to finish. And there's a comprehensive episode on Hess. But yeah, he was he was there at the very beginning. Um, Interesting. 
And he actually, uh, the bar that Hitler would go to to listen to all this crazy stuff was the same bar Hess would go to to um, listen to the same crazy stuff while he was at university. So um, they were influenced by the same terrible human being. That makes sense. Yep. I will not if tell my future children about Hess as someone to look up to. Um, no, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Well, and even of the like the 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 stuff that contributed to society out of Nazism, Hess didn't contribute any of that. Yeah. Well, because you were <laughs> like, I need to tell my daughter about your the girl you did stuff on. She's someone to look up to. Yep, your story's not. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. My 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 story has no role models. Uh, yeah. At all. Um, uh. Just a bunch of complicated men. Finding a fighting a complicated conflict. Well, the German people weren't complicated; they were just evil. But I was speak. I was thinking more about Winston Churchill. Yeah. Like complicated men. Uh, he was complicated, but he was a hot mess too, though. So he was fun <laughs> and kind of an asshole. But well, he was definitely. But uh, yeah, but he he was still he was fun in the sense that Teddy Roosevelt was fun. Yeah. Teddy they were Roosevelt just like was more fun though. Well, Teddy Roosevelt was like the man's man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super like you will love to hear about his daughter. It's like I can't wait to do that story. I don't know when I'm gonna fit it in for what type like topic, but I have to do it justice because legit she is awesome. So and Some she kind of she kind of sucks too, but she's also kind of my hero. But <laughs> I mean everybody from those eras, they both suck and are awesome. Yeah. So um well cool did you have any more comments questions or concerns i don't know but if anybody else does they can email <laughs> us at wild wild what tf at gmail.com they can send you a tweet at wild wild what tf twitter or they can look at pretty pictures or ugly pictures of a dude with one eyebrow um at wild wild <laughs> what tf podcast at instagram.com so Instagram, please don't flag us for weird images. I mean, if they shouldn't, I don't know why they would. I guess it's historical. Probably get pictures of Rudolph Hess off of like Getty images. So yeah. Did Um, you look up the picture of Lillian Bland flying in her plane? Did you see that? I didn't. Not yet. Oh, so it kind of it reminds me a little bit of Wizard of Oz, like the lady on the bike in the tornado. Okay. It looks very similar because she has kind of like a similar hat on and she like she fashioned it out of a bike uh, handlebar. So it definitely has some like uh, Wizard of Oz feel to it. You should look it up. Yeah, that lady is my new historical crush for sure. (laughs) Without a doubt. So she's super interesting. Well, cool. Well, thank you, folks. We will uh, we'll catch you next time. Yep. Thanks. See you later. Bye-bye.